The paper that's being given to you now contains the excerpt from an English translation of the doctrinal formulary of the Council of Chalcedon in 451. Does everybody have a copy? Anybody doesn't have a copy, I'll put it that way. I'm thinking it may, thank you, it, it may take us a lot more than a week to do justice to this. Let me begin, however, today. I'm doing this in connection with our study of the Gospels, which has been going on for 12 years. Be 13 this fall, okay. and we have. Thank you, sir. Mm -hmm. And we have we finished the Gospels of Mark and Matthew. We've got a little over half of John done, but we haven't even started on Luke. But I thought it good to give you some background of why our, our particular approach to the Gospels. Now, last summer, I got a call from Nashville, Tennessee, from the procurement editor of Thomas Nelson Press the largest evangelical press in the English language. And this fellow said he had been listening to Sermons from All Saints, which is a podcast on Ancient Faith Radio. And he was somewhat taken by the approach that I take to the Gospels. He says it is novel and unique. I said, novel and unique are the adjectives that apply to heresy. <laughs> I hope I'm not saying anything that would embarrass an ecumenical council, because if I do, they will certainly meet again and embarrass me. Because a lot more people have heard me speak on radio than ever heard Nestorius speak, <laughs> or Arius, well, maybe, yeah, at least directly, you know, at least directly. How many people would have heard Arius speak? Very few. He was a priest in, in, uh, in, in, in Alexandria, and, and they, didn't, they, didn't, they didn't have a radio in Alexandria. I mean, they had radios, but they didn't work because electricity hadn't been invented. <laughs> but he thought they thought that I, my mind was fresh, unique, innovative. That's just that is simply raw nonsense. It's not. It's none of those things. I spoke to him about the ecumenical councils, and he was very familiar with this. He was very familiar with this. I told him I, I just have a Chalcedonian approach uh, to the Gospels. Um, and he said, he says, 
we want you to write a book on Jesus. Because uh, he says the evangelicals, the American evangelicals, need to be exposed to this approach to the Gospels. And I said, actually, I could write a book on, on Samson. And I've written a book on Job. I'd be glad to write a book on David. But writing a book on Jesus is a little bit much. I'm not sure I can, I can, sure I can handle that. Um, in fact, here at All Saints is the very first time I've ever taught a class on John. Ever. You know, in, in, in half a century of teaching the Bible, I've always pulled back. I said, I, I can't. That's way over my head. I can't. Uh, and the, 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 the series you're getting on Isaiah now, on Wednesday and Saturday Vespers, that's the very first time I've ever worked up enough courage to preach on Isaiah. Isaiah's it's tough stuff. Yes, Chris. Well, yeah, a man's got to know his limitations. Yeah. <laughs> he does. He does. Yeah. Uh, and I'm way past mine. <laughs> I'm way out on thin ice now. So I agreed to write the book, and I'm writing it now. I mean, right this minute, but in, in, it's due on March 15th. And I've just crossed to 39,000 words in a 50,000 word book. Now, as long as nobody, nobody dies <laughs> or we have any other major crises, I mean, the little things like childbirth, I think we could, <laughs> we could probably handle that. <laughs> that was really sweet. That was so sweet. Come to your bottom paragraph. I want to look at the whole thing with you. Not, not the entire thing, but just what I have on the page here. Because I, I picked these paragraphs out, skipped a lot of paragraphs. I want to get the meat and substance of the historical context, and then the, the bottom paragraph has the doctrinal formulation. We'll start there. So following the saintly fathers, and they, in, in the previous paragraphs, they invoke the councils of Nicaea in 325, Constantinople in 381, and Ephesus in 431. And also, in the, if you'll notice in the third paragraph, they invoke Leo of Rome and Flavian of Antioch. Up in the second paragraph, they invoke Cyril of Alexandria. So these are the men who've guided them. Uh, these, these are the great Christological formularies of the fifth century. Uh, Cyril of Alexandria, Flavian of, of Antioch, and Leo of Rome. So following the saintly fathers, we all with one voice teach the confession of one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay. The expression that Cyril of Alexandria used was mia thesis, one reality. Mia thesis, one reality. The same perfect in divinity and perfect in humanity. 
By perfect there, I mean having all the components of divinity, all the components of humanity. Now, there's not a diminished, a diminished God nor a diminished man. The same truly God and truly man of a rational soul and body. Okay? This is the first time the Christian church felt it necessary to insist that Jesus Christ has a human soul. The church always believed that, but this was the first time it was necessary to say that. That he thinks, feels, wills through human consciousness, human reflection, human, human will. The next word is consubstantial, a word that they're taking from the Council of Nicaea, homoousios, of one being, with the Father as regards his divinity. Now, notice what they do. They take this word from the Council of uh, Nicaea with regard to the divinity of Christ. They now apply it to the humanity of Christ. And the same consubstantial with us, homoousios. He, notice here the, the, the parallelism. He is, he is as much one with us as he is with the Father. Consubstantial homoousios, one being with us, as regards his humanity. Like us in all respects except sin. That's from the, from the epistle of the Hebrews, isn't it? Begotten before the ages from the Father as regards his divinity. In the last days, the same for us and for our salvation from Mary, the virgin God-bearer, that's, that's the English translation of uh, Theotokos, as regards his humanity. Now, the, these, these things here, of course, are, they're taken right out of the Nicene Creed. One and the same Jesus Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, acknowledged in two natures, which undergo, okay, here's the list, no confusion, no change, no division, no separation. So how are the divinity and humanity of Christ united? Without confusion, without change, without division, without separation. Everybody notice this? The terms are entirely negative. That, by the way, I believe that's a, a very important point to make in general. Now, I, I should make it more than once. It is never the intention of the church okay, to clarify the gospel. <laughs> okay. This notion that somehow rather the dogma, dogma develops. And people in one age believe something that they didn't in the other age. This is an idea that the Roman Catholics came up with in 1870. Okay. Is the Pope infallible? Well, since everybody had been fighting about that until 1870, they couldn't say it was the unanimous teaching of the Church. Okay. But they formulated the Pope is infallible. Now, how do you defend that? Well, the dogma developed. The dogma developed. Um, this, is, this is a... This is a classical form of argument in, the, uh, in, the, in, in Roman Catholic apologetics. I have to tell you, I don't buy that. 
I believe that dogma serves the purpose not of throwing light on the gospel because the presumption of the church is nothing is more lightful, nothing is more full of light than the revelation of God. What we throw light on is our own thinking. Oh, and what and how do we do that? Well, I, let me give you the, the metaphor I, I like. And, and it's a metaphor I made up, I think. I think I made it up. If that's not, if that one didn't make up, I, I certainly made up the next one. <laughs> the gospel is the road. It's the road. It's given to us. How do we make sure we stay on the road? We put lamp posts along the side of the road. <laughs> you with me? These would be the dogmas of the church. They're there to throw light on where we're driving so we can see where the road is. I don't think anybody else has ever thought of that one. I also liken it to a white line that runs along the side of the road. There are those who believe you're supposed to drive along that white line. Now, you see this all the time. They drive along the white line. And very often, an introduction to orthodox theology is an, a, a great elucidation of the white line. You know? um, in fact, I think if you went, on, went online and looked, don't do it though, and looked up, <laughs> looked up Eastern Orthodox theology, all they describe for you is the white line. They don't describe the road. The road is the gospel. Um, there are those who believe that we, we may make a great deal of it. One person, two natures. One nature, three persons. Make a great, great deal of this. There's nothing like that in the gospel. There's the Father, His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, and there's the Holy Spirit. That's what's revealed. These, these other things are... Are, are designed to clarify our thought. Um, but notice here that all, all four of the descriptions are negative. Please notice that. That all, all four of the descriptions are negative. No confusion, no change, no division, no separation. At no point was the difference between the natures taken away through the union. He's still purely a man and purely God. But rather the property of both natures is preserved and come to, and come together, comes together in a single person, a single subsistent being, hypostasis, who is not parted or divided into two persons, that's Nestorianism, but is one at the same only begotten Son, God, Word, Lord Jesus Christ, just as the prophets taught from the beginning about him, and as the, uh, as the Lord Jesus Christ himself instructed us, and the creed of the fathers handed down to us. The, um, the council that immediately preceded this, 20 years earlier, the Council of Ephesus in 431, pronounced an anathema against any future churchman who would add or subtract to the creed. Okay. 
Anybody would do that, they pronounced it anathema. So the Council of Chalcedon was very careful not to add this to the Nicene Creed. Okay. And that's why the Orthodox get very nervous when anybody monkeys around with the creed. Whether that be by way of translation, I'm thinking here, for example, the hideous translation that was made by the faculty of Holy Cross Seminary in Massachusetts, in which lots of uh, Greek priests will not use, at least two Greek bishops will not use, Isaiah of, uh, of Denver and Methodius of uh, Maximus of, of Maximus of Pittsburgh won't use it. They say, no, you're, you're messing around with the creed. It was the addition of one word, a single word, to the Nicene Creed in the court of Charlemagne that led to the division of Roman Catholic and Orthodox in 1054. The addition of a single word. Uh, and Rome and the East have stared at one another since 1054 about that one word. And then during the pontificate of Pope John Paul II, Rome blinked. <laughs> and the rule for the Roman Catholic Church is now that when Roman Catholics recite the creed by themselves, they put the filioque in. When they recite it with Eastern Christians, whether Byzantine, Catholic, or Orthodox, they leave it out. You know what that means. That <laughs> means that Rome is, is not going to insist on it anymore. Uh, and that makes things so much, so much easier down the road. It'll be, a, it'll be quite a while. I mean, I think Rome, Rome will give up will give up the filioque about three centuries after they give up bingo. But other than that... <laughs> uh, listen, there's plenty of ways they can make fun of us. <laughs> you know, the Orthodox, the Orthodox will adopt the creed about the same time that they get rid of uh, hoagies, or, or, or they, get, they get rid of pierogies, or they get rid of of, of stuffed cabbage leaves or whatever. <laughs> okay. um, all right. What does this mean for the actual reading of the gospel? What does it mean to the actual reading of the gospel? I'll give, start just giving you some for instances. I, I brought, a, brought a Bible here in case I should ever consult the scriptures. When Jesus tells the apostles, they're inquiring about the last day, the end of the world. Jesus tells the apostles, nobody knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father knows. Now that's the reading in the earliest manuscripts, the most reliable manuscripts of Matthew and Mark. Later manuscripts leave out the reference to the Son. <laughs> we tell you that some Christian copyists had trouble 
thinking that Jesus really didn't know. Okay. Robert? Yes, um, Islamic scholars will often point to that and say that's a proof that, there is, that Jesus was not divine. You know, there's no knowing what Islamic scholars will love to do. Right. <laughs> uh, there's an instance where a copyist, somebody copying Holy Scripture, was not guided by the council. <laughs> According to the council, he is homoousios with us, which means that he grows in knowledge and in consciousness. If we didn't know that otherwise, we would have to take Luke's word for it. And he grew in wisdom. Um, we find evidence of Jesus growing in the knowledge of things. Um, that's another way of saying that Jesus didn't know everything. And it's amazing how Christians, how many Christians are reluctant to say that, that Jesus didn't know everything. I've asked, uh, I've asked seminary students back when I taught seminary, did Jesus know that he was consubstantial homoousios with the Father? And they said, well, of course he did. He couldn't have. <laughs> How would you expect a Palestinian Jew in the first century, I mean really the first century, to know a formula that's thought up 300 years later to meet a pro in another language, to meet a problem that he doesn't dream of? To say that Jesus is the consubstantial Son of God, homoousios with the Father, does not have as its purpose to explain the dogma. It has as its purpose to establish the place where you may not go. You may not say he is of a different ousia with the Father. That's all that means. Does anybody here have a really clear idea of what it means to be of one being with God? Neither did the Council of Nicaea. Their idea was to eliminate heresy. Jesus did not speak French. Okay. It's a real weakness on his part, I know. <laughs> Jesus spoke the language of the day, Aramaic. Because he's from Galilee, he may have spoken some Greek. It's possible he spoke some Greek. There was one other. To say that, however, raises lots of other raises lots of other questions. Because Jesus certainly did read hearts. He does now. He certainly did read hearts. Someone like you're familiar with a good, very fine writer named Paul Johnson. He wrote a history of the Jews. Wrote a history of the United States. I'm on about page 800 and something of his history of the United States. I'm only halfway through. <laughs> Uh, he wrote a book on Jesus, and he is forever, whenever he comes up, how did Jesus know this? Well, he's God. Of course he knows it. The, 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 the church believes that the word emptied himself. The Greek word in Philippians is a kenosin, that he emptied himself, that he took the dimensions of human life, which were not native to him, 
and he passes through the entire range of human experience, which means be beginning as a zagat, beginning as a fetus, developing a brain, okay? being recipients of a mother's nourishment and a mother's love, that he's born as a child. We celebrate this all the time in the hymnography of the church. It's, it appears everywhere, you know, in the hymnography of the church. That he's born, that he grows. He's a little boy. He grows up. He, has, he, he goes through the full experience of, of being a human being. And this part of the experience of being a human being, one of which is we get tired. We get worn out. We get hungry. We get thirsty. So being weary, he sits down beside the well and asks the Samaritan woman for a drink of water. Uh, being weary, he falls asleep in the back of a boat and sleeps right through a storm. I suggested in a recent pastoral pondering uh, that he probably got that trait from St. Joseph. Because St. Joseph appears four times in the Gospel of Matthew, and every single time he's asleep. <laughs> God, doesn't ha God, God can't get at Joseph except talking to him in his sleep. That's, all. That's the only way to get at Joseph. He's a, I mean, the man has an impossible situation. He's, he's in charge of the Holy Family. It's the sort of thing, if I was put in charge of the Holy Family, I'd probably lose a lot of sleep. I certainly did. I lost a lot of sleep over my own family. <laughs> you with me? Um, Joseph seemed not to, yeah, just he lies down. He's, he's gone. He's gone. Uh, we do find in Jesus an unusual level of what in, in parapsychology goes by the name of clairvoyance. Clairvoyance. Uh, the clairvoyance is something well known among among monastic fathers. For example, you have people like uh, Saint Tikhon of Zdansk, for example. People come to him for confession, and if they forgot a sin, he reminded them of it, because <laughs> 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 because he could read hearts. You all, you you you. This 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 is uh, holy people have the ability to read hearts. Uh, who was the Romanian saint, uh, Elder Cleopa? Elder Cleopa, who died since I've been here. Uh, Elder Cleopa could read hearts. He would listen to somebody complain their problems, and then he would tell them. What the, but he had, he had a, a spiritual insight. Jesus seems definitely to have that. He seems to be able to read people's hearts. But see, that wouldn't require the divine omniscience. Um, the Word of God, if he is really is a fully a human being, he does not enjoy divine omniscience. He goes through periods of darkness where he struggles. This is clearest, I suppose, in the agony in the garden. Yes, Chris? Well, the, 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 he seems to be a very muscular presence though, around the demons. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> I, 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 I've got to, I'm writing that section of my book now. That's a good idea. Very muscular presence. I like that. I'm going to write that down. Here. Chris Lemon says, you know. 
I'm quoting all sorts of authority. Cyril of Alexandria says this, Chris Lemon says that. <laughs> this morning I even quoted Robert Germany in my sermon. <laughs> Anybody want to throw anything in here? I'll quote you. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I'm writing that section of my book right now. The voice says, you're my beloved son. Next scene, he goes out to the desert. The demon comes to him and says, if you are the son of God, he's going to challenge him on that point. Remember in, in, in Mark's gospel, he called Satan, which is the name he has in the book of Job. So you have a parallel between Jesus and Job. That one I'm quite sure is, 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 is quite intentional. Uh, in, in, in the Gospels themselves, the parallel. Remember, Jesus' acceptance of our humanity means he's tempted. In fact, the epistle of Hebrews says he's tempted in every way except sin. Um, yeah, I'll be, I'll be talking about that because then shortly after this, he's, he's met the, the demons, in the, the demon, in the desert. Very first miracle he has is driving out demons. And that's when the demons start to say, whoo, we know who you are. Leave us alone. Leave us alone. Don't, don't. You find that constant response of the demons, um, which, um, which you correctly described as a muscular presence. Okay. Um, often, however, when Jesus appears to be ignorant, I'm quite sure he's feigning it. Well, teachers do. All teachers do. Uh, let me give you, for instance, I'm writing a commentary on this right now. It'll be a section of one of my chapters in the, in the book. Chapter 6, the Gospel of John. And a great multitude followed him, because they saw his miracles which he did on them that were diseased. Jesus went up to a mountain and sat there with the disciples. The Passover was nigh the feast of the Jews. So it's one year before the Passover at which he dies. When Jesus lifted up his eyes and saw the great company come to him, he says to Philip, How are we going to buy bread to feed all these people? <laughs> Is that ignorance? No, it's not. John goes on, next verse. He said this to test him. <laughs> For he knew what he would do. So what's the, what's the function of the question here? Is to bring, is to bring the apostles into the process. Most often, I'm convinced of this, most often when Jesus asks questions is to invite people to enter into a process. Okay. He's walking along with a couple of guys. They're very preoccupied and they're very sad and they're very down in the dumps. And he says to them, why are you guys so sad walking along this way? And they look at him and say, well, you must be a stranger in Jerusalem. You don't know what's happened here the last few days. He says, what things? They happened to him. <laughs> what things? You know? uh, Jesus shows up outside a tomb, his own. There's Mary Magdalene, they're crying. Jesus says, woman, 
By the way, that's the Aramaic expression for ma'am. <laughs> Don't go call somebody, hey woman, you know. It's, 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 it's the Aramaic equivalent of man, a ma'am, okay. Why are you sad? Who are you looking for? Why does he ask the question? He's eliciting a response. She says, sir, if you've taken him away, tell me you put him. I'll go get him. Only then does he name her. We find, we find this happening. Jesus does this all the time. He asks questions or to draw people into a discussion to engage them. That's what the teacher does. Any teacher does this. Um, he said this to prove to test him, for he knew what he would do. Now, what happens? Who is who travels as a sidekick with Philip when they go on the mission trips? Have you noticed that in the Gospels? Who's the, who's the sidekick for Philip? Anybody? Bill Rudolph's not here. He'd know. Yes, sir. Go ahead. Andrew. Philip and Andrew. Andrew's his sidekick. When Jesus sends them out two by two, Philip and Andrew. Philip answered him, 200 penny worth of bread are not sufficient for them, but everyone might take a little. One of the disciples, Simon Peter's brother, Andrew. If you, look, if you find Philip, Andrew's not far away. Andrew says to him, there's a boy here who has five barley buns and a couple of dried sardines. He brings them into the process. Only when that's done, only when they've offered these five barley buns and two sardines, he makes everybody sit down. The, the, the apostles make them sit down. And then the apostles go around and hand out the bread and the fish. He brings them into the miracle. Yes, ma'am. Father, our, our own relationship with God, and we have the Holy Spirit in us, what was Christ's relationship with the Holy Spirit? In, in, I mean, the Holy Spirit is the only way in which we would be able to accept, to, to practice these kinds of things, the miracles that the saints do. Um, that's, a, that's, a, that's a very, very, that's a muscular question. <laughs> but let me, let me give you a good shot at it. Jesus is united to God in the Holy Spirit. At that time, Jesus rejoiced in the Spirit, and he said, I thank thee, Father. Jesus is described in the Gospel of Luke several times as being full of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit drives him into the wilderness. It's the same Spirit that he shares with us. Now, what that means with regard to the eternal being of God I'm not going into that. I'm going to leave that to St. Saint Simeon, the new theologian, <laughs> to deal with that one. You just got me, Eva. Uh, but people like St. Simeon, the new theologian, uh, treat, of, treat, of that, treat of that question. But that's quite, really quite beyond me. I'm just a, I'm just a, a Baptist Bible, Bible preacher. Yes, sir? St. Cyril deals that very question a lot in on unity of Christ which actually exists in a very good English translation. That's a very fine that's a very fine book. Thank you, Cyril. And uh, and Saint Vladimir's did 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 publish the uh, the translation. 
on the unity of Christ. In fact, I, revere, I reviewed it for somebody several, several, several years ago. Jerry? It always seems to me that the Holy Spirit was kind of like a, a spiritual medium. Yeah. The, the actual medium of God. The saint... I mean, everything on earth, everything is material. And uh, it, it, it seems to be really the, the medium of as sound waves or whatever... Carries and transfers. And That's a good metaphor. Things. That's a good metaphor. Uh, St. Irenaeus of the second century speaks about the Son and the Holy Spirit as the two hands of God in creation. The one is rational. It's the logos. It's the intelligible. The other is transcendent, vertical. Uh, one of the things you might have noticed, and I suspect somebody as sharp as you has, has very much noticed it, uh, when you come from the from the Western liturgy, and you were very much into that, when you come into the the liturgy of the East, one of the most notable differences is what I would what we known as the pneumatological. The anamnesis is the big thing in the West. Anamnesis. Yeah, uh, the, remembrance. the remembrance. You got the, the line, the horizontal line. Okay. The epiclesis is more proper to the East. So after we do the anamnesis, we recite the words of institution. Okay. The very next prayer is calling on the Holy Spirit, the epicletic, to come down and sanctify this bread and wine. In other words, it is as though the word of Christ weren't as though the word of Christ weren't enough. We have to have the Holy Spirit doing this. I think medium is a, I won't pursue that word too far because uh, I'm afraid in, in modern parlance it might have the wrong medium. Uh, let me have your papers. We'll take this up again next week. Okay.